All right, we'll go ahead and get started with Leviticus. Uh, there were handouts, so maybe you got one, maybe you didn't. Uh, if you still need one, Blessed has some, so if you raise your hand, I'm sure he can get one to you if you'd like a handout. Let me go ahead and pray. Lord, we are grateful for the privilege of gathering uh, with your people to be numbered among your people, to um, think about what it is to ascend your holy hill, to draw near to you. We pray that as we look at your word, that we'd have your help in understanding it and applying it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Leviticus is where we will be. We're going to probably actually start... Um, I'm going to start out by reading a psalm in just a minute, Psalm 84, if you, part of it. If you want to turn there, you can. But Leviticus is where we're going to spend most of our time. So the Bible is one big and true story. We're not going to rehash all the details of that. But in some ways, when we talk about that, what we mean is we, we're talking about biblical theology. How, does, how do we see theology... Um, playing out over the storyline of the Bible, right? So real time, space, history, we have a real God doing real work to redeem a people. Um, and, and so one of the, the ways you could summarize that big picture story, I mean, there's several different ways. We've talked about, you know, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Those are kind of the chapters of the, the biography of the world in so, to some degree. Uh, but one thing you can, you can also think about is what, what you have in the main point of what, what is happening throughout the storyline. Well, it's ultimately about God's glory, but specifically the way God is going to be glorified is you have um, God's people in God's place experiencing God's presence, and when I say presence, we mean both his rule, right? His good, benevolent rule. We also mean his um, blessing um, presence, right? His, his smiling face, like we hear in Numbers, chapter 6, the priestly blessing. Uh, may he cause his face to shine upon you, right? God is everywhere, uh, but we want his smiling face, not his judging hand, right? And so that's kind of what we have happening in the Bible. And you see it even in the garden, right? You see it right out of the gate. You have God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's perfect presence and rule. What do they do, though? They rebel against God's rule. So they're kicked out of God's presence, right? And so they're, they're out of his place. And there's a cherub set to guard, with flaming swords, right? Set to guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden, so there's no more going back to the way it was. Well, what's the rest of the storyline? The rest of the storyline is God establishing a people in a place, experiencing his presence. I mean, you see that with the promised land. He's going to bring them into his place, right? After he's redeemed them and made him his people, which starts even earlier back with Abraham. I'm going to make you a people, right? So you see this over and over again. Where's the whole storyline going? A new heavens and a new earth. What's at the center of the new heavens and the new earth? Or I should say who? God is. God is at the center, right? His presence, ruling over his people who are delighting in his presence. God's people in God's place, uh, experiencing God's presence. So in some respect, that's what we have happening. When we, and when we look and where we're at now in the storyline, we've had uh, just recently the, the construction or at least the instructions and, const yeah, and construction of the tabernacle. If you look at the tabernacle and you compare it to the Garden of Eden, there's a lot of similarities. It's almost as if we're making a new garden temple, a new garden where God will meet with his people. God will live among his people, right? And so if we, if we look closely at the tabernacle, we see that. Now, um, and, and that really has been, been the goal. I mean, Psalm 84, I said I was going to read a couple of verses out of there. It says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. 
My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. And this is not an isolated thing in the Psalms. You see over and over again, there's a desire to be in God's place, in God's presence, the, the joy that comes from that. So that's, that's where we're going. So now... Um, <clears throat> We've seen in Exodus, there's been this rescue, this redemption of God's people. We've seen in Sinai, he's given them their law, his law. We've seen the construction of this tabernacle. Well, we have a little bit of an issue though, right? Because the whole tabernacle and all this system is meant that God will dwell among his people. But go back to Exodus. So if you're in Leviticus 1, you can turn back just a page to Exodus 40. And Doug pointed this out last time. So this is review, but I think it's, it, we want to keep this clear in our mind. What is the book of Leviticus about? Well, we have to set it in its context, right? So Leviticus chapter 40, verses 33 through 35. Exodus. I'm sorry. Yes, Exodus. Yes, Exodus 40, verses 33 and following here. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work, specifically the work of building the tabernacle, right? It's, it's been built. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's what we are after. The glory of the Lord in the center of where his people are, right? That's good news. We have a problem though. Look at the next ver verse. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now there are other places where we see the glory of the Lord filling the place and it's, it's not necessarily a problem because it's, it's just a sign of God is this big, he's this glorious. And then immediately somehow the people are able to gather near to him. But that is not the case with what's happening here because look at Leviticus 1.1. 1, 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Something else needs to be revealed by God as to how the people are actually going to have God's presence there and be able to dwell, come near to him, which, which is the goal. So the goal is that God is among his people. He's at the center of where his people are and that they can meet with him. That's why the tabernacle refers to both those things. We even saw that in that Exodus passage. It refers to it as the tent of meeting. God is not only going to dwell among his people, he's going to have a place where they can meet with him. Now, yes, at this point in redemptive history, it's going to be through a mediator. Well, I mean, it still is, right? Um, but it's going to be through a mediator. It's going to be through the priests who are going to mediate between God and, and the people. But the point is, there needs to be an opportunity to meet. Can they meet with God in this tabernacle at the end of Exodus? Not yet. They cannot meet with him yet. He's holy. And this should not surprise you if you've been keeping up with the storyline of the Bible. God is holy. Now these people are sinful. Of course they can't go just meet with God, right? I mean, think about on Mount Sinai. If any of the people or animals come near the mountain, they will die. Do not touch the mountain, right? Only Moses, one mediator, is allowed to even come up to the mountain to receive the law. None of the other people are allowed to go up there. So you have a similar thing happening here. There's this, there's this why? Because God is holy, and you cannot just draw near to him however you want as a sinful person, because, and, and so you're going to see this phrase in Leviticus a couple times too, so that they may not die. Do this so that they may not die. And we're going to see with, with um, uh, um, Aaron's sons, they do die. And immediately after that, it says, do it this way so that you do not die. The whole book of Leviticus is how can we draw near to the holy God, go to the tent of meeting and not die and come out alive and have worshiped and met with God, the living God, the holy and living God. 
So um, Numbers 1.1 Doug pointed this out last time too, but it's helpful to reiterate. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses. This is the next book of the Bible. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. So here's one of my point is, whatever happens in Leviticus is getting Moses and the meeting to actually happen. It's going from the Lord spoke from within, outside to Moses, to Moses meets within the tabernacle with the Lord. That's, that's, Leviticus is answering that question. That's what we're seeing in redemptive history. Okay, so today we're going to look at the first part of what God says is needed for them to receive this ability to come before him. And like we saw in Psalm 84, the people want this. God's people truly want to draw near to God, right? This is their longing. It's not just God says, well, you've got to do this. It's God says you've got to do this. And the people are saying, we want to be able to draw near to God. Okay, so we're going to see, what we're going to see specifically is the sacrificial system. So in the first seven chapters, that's what we're going to cover today, we're going to see the sacrifices that are called for. Uh, we're just going to see five sacrifices, Leviticus 1, and you have this on your handout so you don't have to write all this down, is uh, burnt offering, Leviticus 2, grain offering, Leviticus 3, peace offering, chapter 4 through verse 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 13, sin offerings, chapter 5, 14 through 6, 7, the guilt offering. And then the last section is going to contain some details uh, to the priests about what they're supposed to do in all this, okay? Uh, one thing I do want you to notice is that uh, all of this is God's work of grace. We need to recognize that right out of the gate. Think about it this way. When he gives the law even, he starts out by reminding them, I redeemed you out of Egypt, and then he tells them, this is what it's going to look like to live as my people, and specifically the nation of Israel. There's something unique going on in the Old Covenant. We do have a nation that is God's people, right? Um, so that's grace, right? You get to, um, he communicates his law, that's grace. Now he's going to communicate how they're going to dwell among them, uh, among him, and, um, and it's grace as well. Again, notice, what is the solution? It, right in the beginning here, verse 1 uh, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him. And then he gives him revelation of what needs to happen so that they can gather. You understand God revealing himself and then revealing how we can be right with him is always a gift of grace. And I'm pointing that out because as you read through this, there's a lot of details about what they're supposed to do. Your temptation might be to twist that into, well, of course, they have to work to make God like them. That's not the point. God is being gracious in even revealing to them how they're going to draw near to them. To make it even more clear, you don't have to turn there now, but Leviticus 17, 11, we're going to get there in several weeks. It, it talks about all this blood that's offered on the altar. And it says that the blood is given from the Lord to the people. In other words, these animals are given from the Lord to the people that they might make sacrifice and draw near to him. You, you understand, even what they're bringing in sacrifice is a gift from the Lord to them. And then the Lord graciously invites them to make the sacrifice of what he's given them, that they may be with him. Everything is grace, even in Leviticus. I think it's what you see. Um, now, Leviticus does remind us that there's no way we're going to make it on our own. So it does, I mean, it does uphold the law that the part of what the law does is it does say, hey, you can't come near God and you're not going to make it without a perfect mediator. We're going to see that in sacrifices. So, so don't hear me wrong. It's not like a wink, wink type grace, right? Like I'm just going to overlook that. That's okay. It's God is going to make the way of salvation. That's old covenant and new covenant, though the new covenant is new. There's something different about it. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that we see in the old, right? That's a shadow pointing to Jesus. So that's where we're going. Let's see how God reveals himself and uh, how people can draw near. Look at Leviticus 1. I'm going to read verses. So we're just going to read excerpts. We're not going to read all seven 
chapters that should be obvious by now. Um, I mean, I can talk fast, but I can't talk that fast. So we're going to read uh, the first nine verses of Leviticus and uh, look at the burnt offering. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted from him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar, that is, at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Okay, uh, one more preliminary thing to say here, but I wanted to read that passage before I said this because I think it fits better once you've heard that. Um, you'll notice he just jumps straight into describing what happens in the burnt offering. And, and he does tell us something about what the burnt offering is for, but it, he doesn't give you this long description of, I'm going to tell you why I'm giving you each of these offerings and what each of them, and in other words, when you start reading this, you feel like you've just been thrown into the middle of something that you don't really completely understand what's going on. You understand there's a sacrifice, you understand it's a bull, but you're having to piece things together. And you even kind of have to go to other passages to help you piece together why are we doing this offering and what's the point of this offering and what are the distinctions, what are the similarities. It takes a little bit of work, okay? Um, but I, I, Jim Hamilton gave a helpful illustration that I think points out what's going on here. Um, it's kind of like if you pictured a baseball game being broadcast over the radio, right? Uh, 3,000 years in the future from now. Okay, and, and these people are listening to this announcer. The announcer uh, just jumps into describing what's going on. You know, we have so and this team versus this team, um, and he just starts describing what's going on. N no one uh, jumps in and tells them when you say, hey, or, or if you, to expand the analogy a little more, if you said, hey, I'm going to go watch a baseball game to that person, you know, you, you, would just ex you wouldn't go into all the details of, well, first I've got to get my TV out. Do you know what a TV is? Then I turn on the TV. Then you have to figure out what channel it's on. You're not explaining all that because the people you're talking to right now know what you're saying. The people 3,000 years in the future, I don't know if they're going to know what all that means, right? And then, and then so same thing. You, you have the radio guy. You know, he's announcing the game. It's being broadcast uh, 3,000 years into the future. And, you know, he, he's not stopping to explain foul and fair balls or, uh, when they're hit, what, what the difference is. Now, can you figure it out if you listen? Yeah, you can figure it out. Has he left out any details that, that, that are important for us to know given our place in redemptive history? No. But you understand, part of the reason we feel ourselves disoriented is this, the original audience, they know something of what this is looking like, right? Especially because this is written by Moses. And so God gives him this revelation. He tells the people, they start doing the sacrifices. The people that are reading this right after Moses are seeing these sacrifices happen. They're understanding why they're doing them, what's going on, all the things that are, are happening, okay? So we feel a little disoriented, but I think that's really just the cultural space. It's not a problem with the Bible. Uh, there's not some weakness with Leviticus because of that. We just have to understand that we're separated by time and space. So yeah, we got to do a little extra work to understand what's happening, right? Okay, so burnt offering. 
what is offered in the burnt offering according to verse 2? Bull. Bull. Okay, would you say, okay, so we don't live in an agri- agricultural community quite as much, right? Some of you may have grown up on farms. Um, is a bull a inexpensive offering or very pricey? Very pricey. They still are today, right? So you can realize that, right? Okay. Um, so this is a very expensive offering we have. And and did you pick up on what happens to this offering? What do they do with it? Do they fillet it? They grill it? Sacrifice to the Lord? And then everybody sits around and eats the meat? What do they do with this? They burn it, right? And this isn't like just because the priests like burned meat and then they eat it afterwards. They burn it, char it, make it ashes, and then get rid of the ashes, the only thing that comes out of the burnt offering is the skin. They don't burn the skin. Uh, we find that later it's given to the priest. And so we'll, we'll talk more about how the priests get certain things occasionally from different parts of these offerings. But everything is burned up. Okay, so think about this. You've been told, um, hey, God is among us. He, in fact, meets with his people through this place called the tabernacle through mediators. And he tells you, that part of your worship to him and you enjoying his good presence is that you will offer a bull in sacrifice to him and it will be totally burned up. I mean, that's like someone coming up to you and saying like, you know, a couple thousand dollars, you know, you don't have a lot of money, a couple thousand dollars and, and, you know, that's part of your worship to God. What if, what if you're not sure God's in there? You see what I'm saying? Like this takes faith. That's my point. This, what we are seeing is that the sacrifices demand faith on the part of the people. They have to believe, like Hebrews says, that God exists and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. I think it's uh, Hebrews eleven six or something, right? So they have to believe that. Meat, uh, let's see, uh, Wenham, Gordon, Gordon Wenham writes, meat was a rare luxury in Old Testament times for all but the very rich. And then he gives as, as a uh, pointer to that reality. I mean, we already kind of know that intuitively, but Nathan's parable in 2 Samuel 12, remember when Nathan talks to David and tells him the whole thing about the poor guy and the lamb gets stolen by the rich guy. David's just outraged because why? That, I mean, that's like this, this poor guy's life savings, this lamb. I mean, this is, the guy does not have, the meat was a big deal. Now we're talking bull. Bulls are even more pricey than a lamb. Okay, so, yeah. Is this one bull per person? Talking about millions of people, so each right. is going to bring a bull? Right. So there are, as you keep going, you are going to find a sliding scale of what's brought. It's not always a bull, and, um, and it's not necessarily that every person, every person is not bringing this every day, although these sacrifices would be performed morning and evening, but not every person is bringing them every day, right? There's, there's um, yeah, so that's a good question. Okay, so um, they bring this thing, So, but the point is, um, so, so two things. One is, the Lord does recognize um, there are the poor among us. So even Jesus will point this out later in the Gospels with, when, when they're giving, right? He talks about the, the poor widow giving. Um, th- there is a recognition that what is sacrificial to one person may not be sacrificial to the other. So I think there, there's a, that's a point we can gather out of this. But my point is, all of it is sacrificial. Whether you're bringing the bull, if you're bringing the bird, that's a big sacrifice for you too, given your socioeconomic status, Right? But I, bull just probably more clearly illustrates what we're thinking here. This is, this is a big deal. And so I just want you to see this requires faith. Faith that God exists. He is who he says he is. He's good and he's holy and I want to be near him. Right? That's what faith is. And they have to express that in the sacrificial system. So the offering is verse 3, without blemish. This would signify that it is a perfect substitute. Um, 
and perfection is the only thing that will do. It, it, it has to be a perfect sacrifice without blemish. Um, that, that points, obviously, to um, Jesus being a perfect substitute as well. We'll see that pretty clearly, right? He's got to be without sin and without blemish. The goal of the offering is, this particular offering, one of the goals that we see is that he may be accepted by the Lord. There's something to do with atonement here. There's this idea of um, being right with God through this sacrifice. Um, now, we already talked about some of what happens to the sacrifice. It gets burned. Um, but let's back up for a second. Verse 4, uh, what is the person supposed to do with their animal? They bring the spotless animal and what do they do? They put their hand on the animal, right? There's a, there's a, so what we're doing is we're signifying in my place. This animal represents me and what I should be, which is perfect and without blemish. I think that's what's being pictured there, right? Uh, then who slaughters the animal? The, yeah, the, so the offerer, the person bringing the offering, it's not the priest that slaughters the animal. So this is a bloody thing going on. I mean, this guy is going to be covered in blood by the end of this sacrifice, right? So he sacrifices it with his own hand. He chops it up into pieces. And then the priests come in and they burn the animal. They burn all of it. And in verse 9, we see the result is it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It, the smoke is rising up. Um, one, one commentator points out that it's probably what we have being pictured here in this pleasing aroma is, um, and the smoke that's rising up is a transference from earth to heaven, a true going before the perfect presence of God as a perfect spotless being, right? So, so it's kind of like you lay your hands on the animal. You're saying, I should be perfect like this animal. I'm not. He's going to take my place and die though for me and represent the perfection that I should have had. And then in smoke, he's burned up as a, as a sacrifice, a, a um, rising from earth to heaven to be in the presence of the Lord, which is where I want to be, in the presence of the Lord. So I think there's some sort of transference going on here, a picture of that, obviously. Um, I think that's what we mean when we say it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It, because why? It's demonstrated the faith of this person who says, God, you are the best person in the universe. You are, you are God. Right? You're not, not person like human being, right? But you, you get what I'm saying? Like he has personality. Uh, you are the one I want to be with. And, and so there, that's faith. That glorifies God, right? I am sinful. That glorifies God. I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with God in what he says. That glorifies God. So all this is pleasing to the Lord in this sacrifice. Now, we do have some pointers back to the, the burnt offering in the New Testament. Mark 10:45. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many right? Ransom is part of the idea of what's going on in this burnt offering, a ransom, an atonement. Uh, Paul says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So he, he is our substitute, gives himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He is a fragrant offering. It's this picture of this pleasing aroma going before the Lord for us. First uh, Peter 1, 18 through 19. Peter echoes the Old Testament when he says, you were ransomed, that's the idea of atonement, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Because we do see in here that it doesn't always have to be a bull. We pointed that out earlier. You could have a lamb, you could have a bird, depending on your status and ability to pay. Okay, second offering, the grain offering, Leviticus 2. Um, this probably points to something of dedication to God, thankfulness, consecration. There's several things that I think the grain offering can point to. Let's look at Leviticus 2, 1 through 3. 
When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. So I want you to contrast this with what we just saw. Okay, we're going to compare and contrast, so pay attention. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this uh, this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. Okay, so um, what is different between this and the offering we just saw? And this is going to be obvious, but you can say it. It's not an animal, right? So we have grain, not an animal. So that's, that's a big difference. Um, what is... Um, Similar and not similar. There's something that's kind of both. It's kind of, there's a similarity, but there's not a similarity. Some of it is burned all the way up, but not all of it is burned all the way up, right? So some of it's given and burned, kind of like the burnt offering, but unlike the burnt offering, we don't burn all of it, right? Um, the rest of it then is the part that's not burned is for Aaron and his sons, the priest. Uh, let's see. So it's a food offering. It's referred to. Uh, Wenham points out that this could be translated offering by fire as well. But I just want to say this to be clear because you might read that on a superficial reading may be confused when it says food offering. By food offering, it might mean, it may just literally be referring to an offering by fire. In other words, a translation could be that instead. Uh, but with food offering, it's not saying the Lord is like the false gods that need people to bring him food, right? Or like you see, I think it's, it's at Hinduism or wherever where they go lay and they lay food before some of these gods. Yeah, uh, so we have, we have this in other, other cultures as well. Uh, we have this, I'm sure, in, in America too because we're a mixture of cultures. But um, this is not in any way saying God is waiting on us to bring him food. Okay, so food offering either means you're just bringing something that is food and you're giving it, um, or it refers to an offering given by fire. And so uh, we know this, uh, number one, just because I think the, the grammatical structure of that sentence here, but to be clear, God is the owner of everything and is self-sufficient. He needs nothing, right? So I'm gonna read a couple verses just to point that out. Psalm 50, verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God's saying, if I was hungry, which, which he's not, but he's saying, look, if I was hungry, do you think I'd have to come to you and ask you to bring me food? I own everything. I could take whatever I wanted because it all belongs to me, right? And if you, that whole section, he talks about the cattle on Thousand Hills are mine, right? All that's what's going on in that passage. Uh, Acts 17, verse 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by man, nor is he served by hands as though he needed anything. Is he served by us? Yes. Does he call us to serve him? Yes. Is it a service in which we do something that he actually has desperate need of? In other words, if I do not do this, God, you will, be, you will have your needs not met. Poor God. Poor pitiful God. No. He is not served as though he needs anything. He is rightly served. He's glorified by our service. We get to serve him. That's part of why he does that, is so that we would show faith in him and, and happiness in him. But it's not as though he needs anything. Now, just to point out, um, well, uh, yeah, let me read one more, and then I'll clarify something. Second Chronicles 6.18. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. So my point there, and we saw it in Acts 17 as well, is God is not even in need of a tabernacle for a house. So, and my point is, God doesn't need anything from us. Now, I want to clarify something, though, because it says, um, he, it says the highest of heavens can't contain you, how much less this house that I built. And I just said that God dwells among his people in this house, right? 
This is not a contradiction. The point is, you didn't, like with the false gods, you didn't build God's shelter. Poor God, he's just stuck in the rain and he needs a house and you built it for him. And now he's going to dwell here and we've contained him here. He's the God of Israel and he just lives right here in Israel. No, God, the, the highest of heavens can't contain God. Yet, in a special blessing way, God says, I will dwell among you as my people. A spe- so kind of like even as Christians, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Is the spirit contained just in individual Christians? Spirit is everywhere. And yet in a special, unique way, he dwells inside the temple of his people. Right? Okay. Now again, we see in verses 2 and 9, it's repeated that it's a pleasing aroma. By the way, that's just a repeated refrain throughout these first chapters in Leviticus. It is a pleasing aroma. Now it does mention something in verse 13 um, about salt. It says you shall include the salt of the covenant with all these. Um, I think all that is picturing is the idea that uh, covenant faithfulness. So salt uh, in the ancient world and still today is a preservative, right? And so it pictures a preserving effect. It pictures faithfulness. This thing is not going to rot and fall away. So, th- so there's a sense in which the people are saying, we will be faithful to the covenant, and God is saying, I will be faithful to the covenant through salt being included in the offerings. I think that's what's happening there. Um, okay. Uh, oh, and then, so the other thing I'll point out is we mentioned that the priests were, uh, they would get some of this, this uh, grain offering. And uh, th- so God does, part of what God does in the in the um, service of the temple is he or tabernacle at this point is he provides for the priests who so that why so they can labor in the the table temple tabernacle um, representing the people before God they're, they're not always able out to you know running a farm the same way that everybody else is able to do that and so uh, we have New Testament um, picking up on this first Corinthians 9 13 through 14 do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel so New Testament picks up on this and applies it to why do we pay ministers if we are able to right now it's not that every church is able to do that, right? A minister ministers to the glory of God for the good of God's people and his own joy. He doesn't, he's not a mercenary, right? And these priests were not to be mercenaries either. Now, interesting enough, you will see some of the priests become like mercenaries. Think of Samuel's sons, right? The offerer brings their food and, and they're picking out the best parts of the food while it's on the altar. And what is, I mean, God strikes them dead eventually because of this stuff, right? Okay, third, peace offering, Leviticus 3. We could call this the peace or the fellowship offering. I think this points to fellowship with God, how through sacrifice the people are actually able to have fellowship with God. Leviticus 3, 1 through 5. Uh, hold on. Yes. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. So that without blemish is going to come up over and over again. He shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. So, so far we've seen similar things with the burnt offering, right? They lay their hands on it. They slaughter it themselves. Something different has happened though. What do they do with the blood at this point? They're starting to splatter it on the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar 
on t- on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood of the fo- on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So some similar things, but some different things. The whole animal is not burnt. We're gonna. Um, see that he only burns these certain portions. It refers to these fat portions. Uh, commenta- I don't know enough about butchering meat to know this for sure, but some commentators are saying uh, this is not the fat. When I think of fat, I think of the stuff you cut away and throw away because it's like no one wants to eat that. It's garbage. Um, they're saying this probably refers to more kind of the marbled meat area that would have been much more of a delicacy, kind of like a filet mignon type stuff. So the idea is they're giving the best to the Lord. Um, I did not dig super deep into that. So, you know, under persecution, I'll change my view on that pretty quickly. But my... That's my current, current understanding based on my limited research. But, okay, so the point is, they, they give this um, succulent part to the Lord. And what, what happens to the rest, though? So in uh, Leviticus 7, 11 through 15, um, I'm just going to read an excerpt from that section. 7, 11. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings. That's the one we're talking about right now. That one may offer to the Lord, verse 15, and the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice. And on the next day, what remains of it shall be eaten. Um, we could go into more details there, but, but my, my point is there's a portion that's not burned, and what happens to that? What do they do with it? They eat it. And so you can start to see when we call this the peace offering or the fellowship offering, it's kind of like having a meal with the Lord God, right? We, we've given this offering and we are, we are now enjoying this food together. They would enjoy it probably with their family, with uh, perhaps relatives and others as well. Uh, Wenham points out in his commentary, all meat came from animals given by the worshiper to God. And now partly given back to the worshiper by God. This symbolized the way God gave back to the worshiper his life to go on enjoying. So you can kind of also see this idea that like you deserve to die. Through sacrifice you are redeemed and I give you back your life to continue to enjoy your life to my glory. Um, I think that's kind of what you see happening with some of these sacrifices. All right, fourth offering. And we're going through these intentionally faster. Um, We had more details to unpack in the early ones. Now that we've got some of the groundwork, we're moving a little faster. The fourth offering, the sin offerings and purification. Um, Some can refer to this as the propitiation or the cleansing um, offering. The focus here is on, I think, personal sin. It also deals with purification, which purification is not always a sin issue. Now, I think it is connected to sin. Um, You you have this on your handout. I thought this was helpful. Okay, so the focus, yeah, you see this, uh, this is point number five which is confusing because we're on the fourth sacrifice, but just deal with it. Sin must be cleansed by a ransom paid. So you understand sin, sin has to be cleansed by a ransom that's paid. In other words, in your place, death. This, this one will die for you. Uncleanness, which is the effect of death and the curse of sin, must be wiped away by the blood of life. So uh, Morales comments, life ransoms, so that the life of the sacrifice ransoms from death, and the life of the sacrifice wipes away the stain of death. So some commentators point out that a lot of the uncleanness stuff points us to the fact of this is the effects of sin. And that has to be dealt with as well. And sometimes there's sin. Sometimes uncleanness is, exa- is very closely tied to sin, but there are other times that uncleanness is just a picture of something related to the fact that we live in a fallen world um, and that God's people need to be distinct from that fallen world somehow. 
Now, I'm not claiming I have an answer for why every single thing later on you see mentioned as unclean is unclean. I just think big picture, that's probably what's going on with the uncleanness stuff. Um, if you think about it, like, uh, so, and I don't want to get too far into this because someone's going to deal with this later. We're going to have a whole section on cleanness and uncleanness. Uh, I think Charlie's teaching that, so yay. Um, <laughs> but um, it's going to be, uh, you know, things like skin, skin uh, diseases and stuff. P picturing the dead skin falling off of you. This is a picture of death, right? And so, so it's a reminder, death is not going to enter into the Garden of Eden. Death is not going to enter into the new heavens and new earth. Death is not entering into God's perfect presence, I think is what is partially at least partially being pictured by the uncleanness laws, okay? Um, okay, so I'll leave, leave more of that for later. But the point is, um, there's this offering of purification going on. Leviticus 4, 1 through 2, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, and then he goes on and keeps telling them what to do. So, Part of what's happening here is dealing with sin. That's true. So that stuff about uncleanness, it's not, this is not all about uncleanness. That comes later in the chapter if you keep reading. Uh, but right now, it deals with this idea of unintentional sin. Now, um, before moving into what we mean by that, let me just point out that he's going to give specific sacrifices given your role in the covenant community. If you're a priest, there's a certain sacrifice that has to be given, and the blood has to be sprinkled further into the tabernacle. They have to go up to the veil to sprinkle the blood. If you're a common person, it may just be right there at the altar at the door. And it's a different type of animal that might have to be offered. Why? Well, I mean, in the New Testament, we have the same thing. The leaders are held to a higher standard. That doesn't get the rest of us off the hook, though. Right? We all are responsible to approach the holy God. Death is required of all of our sins. But a leader certainly, as a especially a priest, a priest in this time is the representative before God for the people. And so the idea is when you have uncleanness by your sin or just uncleanness associated with death, touching a dead body and other things that picture the, the realm of death rather than the realm of life, that if you're a priest, it's got to go, the cleansing has to go further into the tabernacle before God's presence because you go further in there to represent God's people. Okay, so we see that in verse 3, verse 13, verse 22, verse 27. It deals with the different types of people. Now, let's talk about those who sin unintentionally. We see that phrase mentioned in verse 2, verse 13, verse 22, verse 27. These are still sins. I want to point that out to you. It's not we're saying because they're unintentional, they're not sins. Um, verse 2, they're doing what God said not to do. Verse 35, the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. We're talking about sin. Um, it isn't simply sin that we don't recognize, although I do think that's part of it. It certainly can be that. Look at chapter 5, verse 1, because this is still under the same rubric of these unintentional sins. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet he does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. So the example given here is someone that is called to testify in court, like it's a public, hey, there was a murder. If anyone has any information, you need to come forward and tell us. And, and so this is saying, this guy, maybe there's a mob boss, right? I don't know, maybe they have mob bosses in ancient Israel, I don't know. But there's this mob boss, and he's like, listen, if anyone talks, you know what's going to happen, right? And so this guy's for whatever reason, he's like, I'm not going to do it, right? Okay, but the point is, he know, he's choosing not to do what is right. This is, this is, so unintentional does not mean sin that you just had no idea it was a wrong thing to do, necessarily. I think that is part of it. Um, verse 5, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed... He shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for that sin. Um, and then he goes on and says what he will bring. And it's for atonement for his sin, we see in verse 6. 
Um, so what does unintentional mean? Here's what I think it means. Uh, Hebrews 5.2 says, the Levitical priests of the Old Testament are able to, they were able to deal gently with the ignorant. So maybe they don't know. They, don't, they didn't know any better because they hadn't been taught quite yet. Um, the wayward, those who, they, they do go, that's, that's kind of the more like, well, I knew what I was doing. I knew it was sin, but I went that way anyway. But they're wayward. I don't want to keep going that way, but I want, I want to come back. Um, since he himself is beset with weakness. So weakness is another category that we're talking about here. So they sin because of these, these reasons. And they make an, and what do they do? They, an unintentional sin, I think, is marked by they are ready to make the sacrifice when they realize the fullness of their guilt. In other words, their conscience strikes them and they recognize that what God says is right and I have done what is wrong. They are ready to turn around and make sacrifice for it, right? Repent. Um, this is in contrast to uh, so here's what I would contrast unintentional sin with. High-handed sin. I think that's what it's contrasted with. And you see that in Numbers 15, 29 through 31. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally. Notice that word, unintentionally. For him who is native among you, an Israel who's a stranger. Okay, verse 30. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord, he has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off, his iniquity shall be on him. The only iniquity that falls on you is what? Iniquity that you do not confess and repent of and turn to God for salvation from. So I think the difference then is an unintentional sin, because you see over and over again in that passage, it's going to say when he realizes his guilt, this is in Leviticus, when he realizes his guilt, he shall make atonement and this is what he shall do. Right? So there's, in other words, there's this beautiful picture of I, I, I'm agreeing with God and turning away from my sin and making sacrifice. High-handed sin reviles the Lord because it says, it basically, here's what it says. Look, I don't really know if God's in that tabernacle. You say he's in there. I have no clue if he's in there or not. And even if he is, what makes him so great? I think the sin is, is pretty good right now. And he doesn't turn around and he doesn't make the sacrifice. That's the difference. So I think when it says unintentional sin, it just means you're ready to repent of it. That, so so sin, the sin offering, these offerings are made for those who are repentant. I think that's what we're talking about here. Um, it's different than a high-handed sin. They realize their guilt. They realize, and so this is what Hebrews warns of when it says in Hebrews 10, 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? I think there were, there's a warning that if you commit high-handed sin like we just described, in other words, you do not see Jesus as worthy and true and the only Savior that you want, then you're trampling him underfoot. Just like this high-handed sin does to the, they revile the name of the Lord, we saw back in Numbers. So the question for us is, do you see your sin as an enemy? Or do you side with your sin against Jesus? That's what, when we do church discipline, that's what we're, we're not disciplining uh, every time someone sins. I mean, directly. I mean, to some degree we are, right? Because we, we admonish one another. We, that's, part, that's all part of that whole process. But in terms of saying excommunication, hey, look, you shouldn't think you're going to heaven. Because what's going on right now does not picture someone who's on their way to the kingdom of heaven. Um, I mean, that, that's what we're saying. We're giving that sort of warning to them that you need to be right with God and you have to repent, right? You can't side with your sin against Jesus. Someone who does that is to be excommunicated. Is, is that making sense? And that's kind of what it means when it says cut off from the people, cut off from the Lord in those Old Testament passages. Okay, guilt offering. We could also call this restitution or repentance offering. Leviticus 5 through 6. 
The Lord speaks to Moses again in verse 14. Uh, see that in Leviticus 5.14. If anyone commits a breach of faith and a sin, sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram. Um, and then you, you read what it should be valued at. Um, in verse 16, he shall also make restitution for what he has done. Look down at chapter 6, verse 2. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord, deceiving his neighbor... Now look down at verse 4. And he realizes his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery. And then it goes on and says he'll restore it plus he'll restore extra. So again, I think this is, you realize you've done something and it's a sin and it requires some form of restitution. Some form of something extra above and beyond to take care of what you've done. Because your sin has had a practical effect too. Okay, there needs to be something that makes it right. So there's a restoration going on. Okay, instructions for the priest... Leviticus 6, 8, and 9, the Lord's going to speak. He's going to command Aaron and Moses saying, this is the law of the burnt offering. And then he goes on and tells them what they're supposed to do. He's going to say that about the grain offering, the sin offering. He's going to add in one more offering in here about an ordination offering. Whenever they are being ordained to the priesthood, this is the offering that they will offer. Okay? So, broad overview, look at verses 37 and 38. Here's what we've looked at in Leviticus 7. Leviticus 7, 37 through 38. This is the law of the burnt offering of the grain offering, of the sin offering, of the guilt offering, of the ordination offering, and of the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. So we see with, um, I think this is a helpful quote, I gave it to you on your handout from Wenham. He says, the sacrificial system therefore presents different models or analogies to describe the effects of sin and the way of remedying them. The burnt offering uses a personal picture of a man guilty uh, of of man the guilty sinner who deserves to die for his sin and the animal dying in his place god accepts the animal as a ransom for man the sin offering uses a medical model sin makes the world so dirty that god can no longer dwell there at least his blessing presence um, the blood of the animal disinfects the sanctuary in order that god may continue to be present with his people the reparation offering that's that one we just looked at uh, represents presents a commercial picture of sin. Sin is a debt which man incurs against God. The debt is paid through the offered animal. So I think that's a helpful summary. Two quick applications. One, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. Hebrews is the best commentary on Leviticus, right? You should go, so I'd encourage you, read Hebrews over the next several weeks as we're going through Leviticus. But Hebrews 10, we see, I'm gonna just point out a couple verses from Hebrews 10. Since the law was a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of the realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Verse 12, But... When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So this is pointing to Jesus, right? This is, this is they're, they're doing what they need to do in the Old Testament, but the full payment is actually going to come in Jesus. A lamb and a bull isn't going to cut it for a person made in God's image. So we see Jesus taking that for us. And we see then what that means is, verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is through the flesh, his flesh, and since we have a great 
priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance with our hearts sprinkled, just like that altar, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You see, that's what we're doing. When we draw near through Christ, we are saying, I believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. I believe I must come to him through the only sacrifice he has made. And I had better come to him that way. And I have the privilege of coming to him that way. That's what we have happening in Hebrews. So, we, so what do we do? We hold with confidence. Just like how they brought those animals with confidence. And again, the temptation is to, is to doubt. Right? But they come with confidence. I can't see God right in front of me. But he's, he's, he's there and he said to do this. And I want to be near him. And so we do the same thing. I don't, I don't see him face to face, but I know his effects in my life. I know Jesus is there, so I, with confidence, I draw near to God. Second, and last point, we now get to bring our lives to God as a living sacrifice. We no longer bring physical sacrifices. We bring a living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. We could say blameless, right, to some degree. That's what we're aiming for, which is your spiritual worship. Now, we're still going to sin and fail, but we continually come back, and it's through Jesus. You're sacrificing yourself is not what saves you. Jesus did it, but because he did it, I wholeheartedly, like that smoke from that burnt offering, I want to be rising to God's presence. I want to be holy and blameless before him. I want to be a living sacrifice to him. And uh, if you were to look at Malachi 1.6, I'll leave you to do that on your own. Um, that's an interesting contrast to what Romans 12 is calling us to. The people of Israel fell into this and we don't want to fall into this where we come with the junky sacrifice. He says, look, you're bringing me blind and lame animals. Stop bringing animals if that's what you're going to bring. He says, would you bring that type of animal to your governor and you think he would accept you if you said, here, governor, we respect you so much. Here's my blind and lame bull. Why are you doing that on my altars? The Lord says right? Again, Jesus is your sacrifice, and because of that, you joyfully get to be a living sacrifice to him. And so think about, think about what that means for the way we, what we bring to the Lord. We just bring kind of, you know, little pockets of our life as, as if he's pleased with that, right? We, we want to come fully before him, offering our whole selves. And as we fail to do that, we constantly, with confidence, draw near through Jesus, and when we do obey, we constantly give thanksgiving to God because it was all the work of Jesus through his spirit in us. Right? So, let's pray. God, thank you so much for what you have done, what you continue to do. Uh, thank you for these shadows that um, we now so clearly see the reality of in Christ. Thank you for sending him. Thank you for the redemption we have. We pray that we be living sacrifices. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.